You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. We'll be looking at 2 Kings 5 verses 1 through 14. It's printed on page 9 of your bulletin. It'd also be helpful, you could open your Bible if you'd like as well, but please give God's Word your full attention. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you to Naaman my servant, sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he went to the king, saying, why have, you torn your, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Uh, before we turn our attention to looking at this passage, would you pray with me? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for giving your church your word. And I do ask now, Father, that as we look at this, your word, that you would send your Spirit's blessing upon it, so that this word would become for us the words of life. That within this word, we would see Jesus Christ, his love for us, his commitment to us, his work for us, and in seeing Jesus Christ, we'd find ourselves knowing your love more deeply, more committed to living a life of loyalty to him. Father, speak. Your church is listening. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. 
Sorry, I'm getting a little feedback. Lyndon, you want to go turn the mic down? Oh, good. Will's back there. Sorry, Will. Couldn't see you. <laughs> Her name was Jennifer Thompson. And in 1984, she graduated from university. She had a 4.0. In her last year of university, she was the homecoming queen. She had nothing but a bright future ahead of her until it happened. He broke in in the night, and he assaulted her. She didn't even dare fight back, as he had deadly weapons at his disposal. And it could have finished Jennifer, and it could have finished most of us, but Jennifer was a woman of, of great bravery and courage. And she studied her assailant's face. As she was being assaulted, she said, One day, I will identify this man, and he will pay for what he has done. I will make sure he gets put away in prison. Not long after the assault, she reported what had happened to police. The police had a lineup of suspects that they thought likely could have been the perpetrator, and she was able to identify the suspect from a, a group of photos from parole, pe people on parole. She then uh, identified the assailant from a lineup. Bravely at her trial, she took the stand and spoke clearly that she knew for a fact this was the person who had assaulted her. Ronald Cotton was his name, and she looked him in the eyes and told him, you will pay. And though most of the evidence was circumstantial based on her testimony and Ronald Cotton's previous behaviors, he was put away, and he was actually put away for life. He pleaded his innocence, though, and two years later, he did win something of an appeal case, and Jennifer again bravely took the stand, looked him in the eyes, and testified that he was the assailant. The defense made a compelling argument that it may have been another suspect, it may have been someone else who committed the crime, but based on Jennifer's certainty and her commitment, Ronald Cotton remained in prison. Eleven years later, he won yet another appeal. By this time, Jennifer Thompson was married she had triplets that night in 1984, seemed like something that she had moved past, that had lost its grip on her. But once more, Ronald Cotton would be granted a trial, and the prosecuting attorney, the DA, said, let me have a sample of your blood. There's DNA evidence. We will put Ronald Cotton away for good, once and for all, and Jennifer Thompson, without missing a beat, said, of course. She gave blood for the DNA test. And then one day, the unthinkable happened. The district attorney knocked on her door. It wasn't Ronald Cotton. It was the other suspect, and the DNA evidence was absolutely conclusive. And Jennifer Thompson was devastated. Devastated. According to an interview she gave, she said, How do I give back 11 years to somebody? She said her life now consisted of two nightmares. That nightmare in 1984 and that nightmare 11 years later when she realized she was certain but it was the wrong man. Her burden was too great, and she didn't know how she was going to move on. She couldn't live with the shame of having put someone in jail for 11 years. She felt she had ruined Ronald Cotton's life. And after talking to a pastor and talking to a counselor, she realized the only way forward was that she needed to meet with Ronald Cotton, and he agreed to meet with her. 
And they met in a church. As the transcript goes, she said this. She said, I'm sorry. Ronald, if I spent every day for the rest of my life telling you how sorry I am, it wouldn't even come close to the way I feel. Ronald Cotton was calm. He was quiet. He sat in silence for a while, and then he finally spoke, and he said this. I'm not mad at you. I've never been mad at you. I just want you to have a good life. Of course I forgive you. We're both victims here. The conversation went on for two hours, and some two hours later, as family anxiously paced in the parking lot, the doors opened, and Jennifer Thompson and Ronald Cotton walked out, and they embraced. And they now work together with the Innocence Projects to free people who've been wrongfully in prison because of DNA evidence. Now, you might ask, how does a man like Ronald Cotton find it in himself to forgive the woman who looked him in the eyes multiple times and took away 11 years of his life? How could he forgive her? How could he extend her this kindness, this grace? Well, in prison, when he was at his lowest, he heard the gospel actually from his father in a meeting well, he was meeting with his dad. And for the first time in his life, the gospel made sense. He experienced grace, and so all he could do was extend it. This story is all about grace. You might not see it right away. It's about someone who's received grace, extending grace. And someone who receives grace, who certainly doesn't deserve it. And that's what I want to look at, the story of Naaman. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, though I do say that every week. This one really is like last week. But here's what, how I want to look at this passage. I want to look at what this passage teaches us about grace, particularly how grace pursues us, then what grace demands of us, and I want to end our time by looking at why grace even comes to us in the first place. So look, first, let's start by looking at how grace pursues us. How do you know grace is coming after you? This, how do you know this force is moving at you like a glacier, slow but unstoppable? Well, who receives grace in this passage? Who is it? Certainly, it's Naaman. And how does this grace pursue Naaman? Well, what do we know about Naaman? We get quite the description in verse 1. 22 words in Hebrew, nothing but positive descriptions for the most part. He's the commander of the army of Syria, the strongest army of the region, who has been quite uh, pesty and a thorn in the side of the, Israel, uh, the northern kingdom at the time. He's a great man, we read, a man of valor. He won many military victories. It seems as though he had won a victory against uh, Israel at some point, and as a, a bounty of war, he had taken with him this young servant girl, this slave girl. He's certainly high in favor with the king. The king is quick to write him a reference so that he can travel to Israel to find the prophet who could heal him. He's either extremely wealthy or he has access to the wealth of the king because he goes with the equivalent of 750 pounds of silver and 120 five pounds of gold. I have no idea what it's worth because inflation changes every day, so no idea what it's currently worth, but millions of dollars, multi-millions of dollars. He comes with these ten hand-sewn ceremonial cloths that only a king might have one or two of these. He comes with ten of these things, something greater than maybe a Rolls-Royce or a fine piece of art, but maybe most blessed and most surprising, though he's the king of the army that is pestering God's people, we read, God had given him favor. God had given him victory. Sorry, the Lord had given him victory. 
When you see in, in your Bible, the word Lord is probably in all caps. It's referring to this Hebrew word Yahweh, the God who revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God who made himself known in the burning bush to Moses as the great I Am. That God had given victory to Naaman. This is a blessed man, because though he is an enemy of God's people, God's blessing is upon him. And how does God's grace start to pursue him? Well, of all the descriptions we get of Naaman, of all the greatness and glory that go to his name, there is one description that overshadows the rest, and that's at the very end of verse 1. If you're reading in Hebrew, it's the last word. We read that he was a leper. This one word overshadows all the rest and in many ways dominates all the others. Leprosy uh, is not modern-day leprosy. It was, it, it was referred to a variety of skin disorders, some of them being rashes and various diseases that were great pain, greatly painful, but some of them did result in people dying and body parts uh, falling off, fingers and limbs being lost. And it seems as though he has a severe case because in verse 7, when the king of Israel receives this note that Naaman wants to be healed, the king of Israel makes the claim, you know, makes this, this uh, cry as he tears his clothes, Am I, do I have the ability to make alive? So it seems as though this is a very serious type of leprosy that has some sort of terminal illness to it. But how does grace pursue Naaman? How does it come after him? It comes after him by crushing his illusion of self-sufficiency. That's how grace pursues him, by crushing his illusion of self-sufficiency. He has everything, but with this skin disease, he has nothing. And this is always the case. You will never, ever experience grace until you know how low you are. What I want you to hear, what I'm trying to argue is this. Grace has to humble us before it can heal us. It crushes us before it comforts us, it confuses us, before it calms us, it shames us, before it satisfies us, it hurts us, before it helps us, it puts us down, before it lifts us up, it confounds us, before it comforts us, it breaks us, before it builds us up. This is how you know grace is pursuing you. You feel like you have everything and nothing at the exact same time. Watch out. Grace is coming. And it starts by exposing this myth, this illusion of your self-sufficiency. And you begin to realize how fleeting life is and how fragile you are on the big story around you. This is when you know grace is on the hunt. This is as you know when grace is pursuing you and coming into your life. Friends, could it be that the very one thing of your life, that one thing that you would get rid of and everything could be perfect, that thing that keeps nagging you, could it be that the Lord has left that in your life that grace might be ready to do its work. That you might know that there's something beyond riches and something beyond health. That one child who you just can't seem to fix, your finances which never seem to get into order, all the bad investments that seemed wise at the time, the habits that you can't seem to break and they seem to enslave your body, that fear that you've always had that prohibits you from taking risks and enjoying life that is in front of you, the health scare or the health diagnosis that everything inside of you wants to pretend isn't real, the relationship that doesn't seem to be able to be restored, the guilt you can't seem to get rid of, or just that dull ache of unhappiness 
when you have it all and yet it feels so empty? What if this wasn't a sign that God's ignoring you or that he's turned his back to you? What if these moments in your life are signs that God is sending his grace and it's coming at you, it's pursuing you? This is how grace pursues us. It doesn't come to us in a bow. It's not wearing pastels. It doesn't come with a smile on its face. It comes in pain so that it can expose our false belief in our self-sufficiency. This is how grace pursues, but now let's ask, what does grace demand of us? Well, we see what grace demands in what it demands of Naaman. And in verse 5, Naaman tells us what he thinks it is going to cost to receive this grace of healing. What does Naaman assume he needs? Well, he assumes he needs piles of money, a couple million bucks, a whole entourage coming with him, the finest materials. And Naaman furthermore assumes that if he's going to receive this blessing of God to be healed of this disease, not only will he need a ton of money to pay for it, It's going to have to go through the halls of power. That's why he doesn't go straight to the prophet. He was told that there's a prophet in Samaria, in the northern kingdom, who could heal him. And so Naaman assumes like anyone of his day and anyone of our day, if I'm going to get access to that prophet, where do I go? I bring all my money. I go to the king. The king is the one who has access to the power. The king will put me before the prophet. But the king has no ability to heal. And as soon as he sees Naaman's entourage with these, all this silver, all this gold, all these clothes, what does the king do, the king of Israel? He tears his robe. As this is going to incite a war, he says. This is not how. This is not what grace demands. Naaman has to find the prophet. Elijah comes to the king, tells the king, send Naaman my way. Naaman goes to Elijah the prophet's house. It's very interesting. He's not invited into Elijah's house, is he? He has to stop at the doorway. And then, what does grace demand? Elijah says, all right, want to be healed? Messenger, go tell Naaman this. Dip yourself seven times in the Jordan, you'll be healed. But how does Naaman respond? He says, are you kidding me? I don't know if you catch the humor in here. He's saying, look, I kind of wanted one of those pin and teller moments. I wanted you to wave your hands over everything. You know, pray, and the trees wiggle around, and, you know, the dust stir up. And then, and then you put your hands over me, and then I can watch as it goes away. Going down to the Jordan River, he says, look, we, we have two fine rivers where the snows of the mountains roll down the, the, the melt and roll down the mountains and flow to the purest and finest of rivers where the water is moving so smoothly. Why would I go to your backyard creek in, in Jordan where I can't even fully lay down in most areas, where the water stands still at times, ankle deep? What are you talking about, prophet? This can't be the way grace works. Now, what are we to make of this? Naaman's rage, his anger, it's this. That grace demands something of him, but it's just too simple for him. It's just too physical. It's not magical enough, and he cannot handle it. This is too ordinary. It's not unique enough. A little child could do this. Someone with low IQ could do this. Someone with no power could do this. This isn't sufficient for me. I'm a man of great power. I came with all this money. Listen, what I'm trying to say is this. I know you know something of what Naaman's experiencing. Because I know as a pastor, if I stood in front of you and said, listen, 
Salvation is by faith alone through grace. But if you give a million dollars to Christchurch Toronto, I bet there's a, good, a better chance that you'll end up at the pearly gates. And you might even get a VIP treatment. If I told you that, if I stood up here and told you that today, you, most of you who are mature believers would laugh me off. But you know over time the church could be filled with people who see that as true. Who open bank accounts, may, many of whom would be poor. But think, well, if I start chipping away at that million dollars, maybe I could get my guaranteed spot. Or if I say, listen, if you just commit your life to good works, do nothing for your own pleasure, nothing for your own good, if you do nothing but good for your neighbor, then for sure you will, you will have a good place in heaven. Some of you would work yourself until you are exhausted. If I say, listen, you want to you for sure experience grace? You have to get rid of that nasty habit, whatever it might be that addictive habit that you can't put away. But if you, if you can do that, you'll get grace. People would love this approach to grace. They would love it. You know why? Because it gives them something to do, and they say, I will commit to it. I will do it. That sounds reasonable. God should, I should get rid of that habit. Therefore, this must be how things work. Listen, this is not how grace works. When I say to you that all you have to have is simple faith and trust, that Jesus died for your sins, that he was resurrected and he sits at the right hand of God, that all your sins can be forgiven by you closing your eyes and say, I believe this story to be true. I will follow you, Jesus. When I tell you that, everything in you says there's got to be more. There's got to be more. It's just too ordinary. It's too simple. It's, it's too ripe for abuse. It's, it's too physical. It's not magical enough. Listen, the longer you're a Christian, the more you know it is harder and harder to believe that what grace demands is simple faith and simple faith alone. As the hymn writer puts it, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Naaman is learning what grace demands. And he had to go to the water. But it wasn't just water. It was water mixed with the word. The word of the prophet. He had to believe the word in simple faith and go to the water. It shouldn't surprise us that the entry ritual for the church, whether you're a prime minister or you're living in abject poverty with no home, the entry to the church is what? Water and words this is how people formally join into the church. Water and words. Words that have to be trusted. A ceremony of water placed upon you. This is what grace demands. It says you want to be clean? All it takes is simple faith. Simple faith and simple faith alone in Christ. As a side note, if you're not baptized, find me afterwards. Make it happen. If you're baptized as a kid and you're wondering what in the world happened back in that day, remember, it wasn't just the water. There were words attached to that water where Jesus said, you belong to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that God sent his Son to die for your sins that you might be completely forgiven and have life unending with him. Believe it. Simple faith, nothing else. This is what grace demands. Simple faith like a child. It's no wonder his skin is healed and he looks like a child again. This is what grace demands of us. But now let's end by asking, why does grace come to us in the first place? 
So Naaman goes, he dips himself in the water, and he's healed. It's fairly uneventful. Lyndon, Pastor Lyndon will preach on the second part of this passage, which is quite good next week. I'm not saying his sermon's good. It might be bad, but the second part of the passage is also very good. Hopefully it's not bad, Lyndon. You got it. <laughs> I just can't promise. No guarantees. Naaman goes, dips himself seven times. He's healed. But why does grace come to Naaman? Why does he receive grace in the first place? Who's the hero of the story? Elijah's hardly mentioned. He sends his messenger out to do his bidding. Who's the hero? Who is the hero? Well, most assuredly, it's this unnamed slave girl who probably saw her father be executed in war, probably saw her mother horribly mistreated, was taken away into slavery. She was old enough to make memories because she has memories of the word of the prophet Elisha. That's how she tells Naaman about the work of Elisha. But something happens during a war, during a raid. Her family disappears, loses everything she knows. She's captured and taken, and she now is Naaman's wife's servant, probably horribly mistreated. How does grace come to Naaman? It comes because of this one unnamed girl, this mistreated girl, someone who's lived her whole life as less than second-rate citizen. How does grace come to Naaman? This girl paid the price. That's how grace came to Naaman. And what do I mean by that? What could this slave girl have done? She knows. She has the medicine in her pocket, so to speak. She knows how Naaman can be healed. She knows it. What, is, what does she know? She knows there's a prophet in Samaria, a prophet named Elisha. He can heal. She has that in her pocket. And here's a woman who's been mistreated her entire life, taken from her family, being raised as a slave. What could she do? She could spend her entire life watching Naaman die limb by limb, watching the infections bother him. And what could she do the whole time? She could say, listen, I have the power. I have the medicine and I'm not going to give it to you because you don't deserve it because you're treating me as a slave because you took me from my parents. She has tremendous power over Naaman, tremendous authority over Naaman. She controls him at this point. And why does grace come to him? Because she was willing to pay a price. She was willing to pay the price of usefulness, as the pastor Dick Lucas puts it. She could have extracted revenge. She could have delighted her whole life watching him die a slow and painful death, but she doesn't. She tells her master of the medicine. She shares the good news that God's power has broken into our world and is working in our world through the prophet Elisha. She doesn't have to share the medicine. She chooses. She could have extracted revenge. She could have lived a life of bitterness. She chooses not to do that, but to extend grace to someone who doesn't deserve it. She remembers in her childhood the stories of Elisha, and she loves her enemy. Listen, you want to be forgotten in this world? Cling on to your bitterness. Hold tight to it. Extract revenge every chance you get. It'll feel good for a short period of time, but you'll never be remembered. You want to be remembered? Love your enemies. Extend grace to those who don't deserve it. Forgive and really, really forgive. Even when it's hard, remind yourself that you have forgiven. Is not, this not exactly how our gospel works? Someone has to pay the price. 
Someone has to surrender the revenge. Someone has to surrender the justice. Listen, this girl probably knew psalms that she sung as a child that were about the Lord destroying her enemies. In some senses, she had a right to see this man as her enemy and watch him die this miserable death, but she doesn't because she had to know herself to be a recipient of grace, and therefore she herself extends grace. This is how our gospel works. When the strong become weak, the weak make themselves strong through forgiving and loving their enemies. The strong make themselves weak for the sake of the weak who think themselves strong. This is how Ronald Cotton could forgive and could forgive so quickly. If grace is received, grace then gets extended. This is the good news we celebrate each week, that God himself, the one that we offended, the one we so mockingly assumed, we could take his world and honestly take him and his things and assume that they would become our servants, even treat him as our servant, the one we have despised and mistreated, the one that we have watched generation upon generation upon generation of humanity turn their back on, this one, he pursues. This one, rather than extracting judgment, what does our God do? Sends his son to pay for all of our sins when we least deserve it. While you were an enemy with God, that's when Christ came to die for your sins. This is exactly how the gospel works. Listen, our Lord is like this little slave girl. He did exactly what she did. He loves his enemies. While we were still enemies, Christ died. This is our gospel. Hear the good news. It's true. It's our hope. Deep, full forgiveness is offered to you in the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. The only cost is simple, simple faith. But you've got to turn and trust him. And you've got to acknowledge that this path of self-sufficiency that you think you're on is destroying you. Turn from that. Trust that Christ is your sufficiency. And what he says is true. And you will taste life unending, healing greater than Nimrod. You can, you can experience it and taste it today. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for this little slave girl who's unnamed, who I hope I meet one day when you make all things right, who exhibited such tremendous faith, who did something that I find to be unfathomable. And yet it shows me that she understood her state before you better than I understand mine. Help us all, Father, to understand the ways in which we were, and in many ways still act as though we're enemies of yours in the way in which you continually extend grace towards us. And Father, remember the work of Christ. Forgive us of all of our sins. Make us whole. Make us clean. Give us hope that this world is not the last chapter, but there's a world coming of life unending where we will walk with you healthy, whole, and clean. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.